Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Today, we're going to focus on how we enter the temple of God. The past two podcasts have giving you a brief history into the building of the two temples and the destruction of the two temples. We've learned about the walls and the gates surrounding the temple, and we even dug into prophecy that foretold that the temples would be destroyed and that the eastern gate would be closed until the return of Christ. We learned that Herod the Great was not such a great guy. But he was a master builder, and he created such amazing structures as Masada, Caesarea Maritima, Herodian, and the complete redesign of the Second Temple. We learned from Flavius Josephus that over a million people will descend on Jerusalem during the High Holy Days. And we learned that ritual cleansing and a mikvah is essential before entering the temple. During today's podcast, we're going to take a look back at how Israelites entered their ancient temple of God. We'll dig into how they prepared themselves before entering his holy presence. And we're going to reflect on how we respond today when we're called to be his temple. The Bible tells us that to the Israelites, The temple was their sacred place to meet God. They worshiped there, made sacrifices there, and presented their requests to God. The temple wasn't just beautiful, it was holy. Why was it holy? Because the presence of God was there. Way back in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we learn in Exodus 25, verse 8, that God had said to Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. So God wanted to have a relationship with his people. Now travel back in time to the time of Jesus. Remember, the temple is built on Mount Moriah. So to enter the temple from anywhere, you had to either climb a bunch of stairs or go over bridges to get inside. From the east side, where we know Jesus entered many times as he would come down from the Mount of Olives, you had to cross over a bridge that was the width of a four-lane highway, and it had Double arches made of stone weighing over a thousand tons. The only way the 10,000 laborers could even build this bridge was they first had to build a hill and then build the bridge on top of this hill and then remove the hill. Oh my gosh, that is a crazy amount of engineering just to enter the temple of God. Now, Jerusalem was located primarily to the south of the temple. On my website, 
studentofthebible.com. I've included that scale model of ancient Jerusalem that's a 50 to 1 scale model. It's currently at the Israel Museum. I want you to take a look at it so that you can get a better idea of the relative size of the hill on which the temple stood compared to the town below. You'll also be able to visibly see that most of the town was south of the temple. Therefore, archaeologists now believe that the majority of the population probably entered the Temple Mount from the southern side. The backdrop to my website shows a close-up of the southern wall and the southern stairs. These stairs were just recently uncovered by archaeologists, and it was such a tremendous and exciting find. Now, what they've learned is that when you would emerge from the stairs, you would have a double gate called the Holder Gate. And for crowd control, one of the doors, most likely to the right-hand side, would be the entrance. So everybody had to go in that way. And then the door to the left would be the exit. But here's what's so interesting. If you were in mourning, you were sad because someone close to you had died, you would actually reverse the direction entering the temple. You would be swimming upstream. You would be going in the out. Why? Well, that was so everyone would know that you were in mourning. Getting back to the southern steps, we have learned that many rabbis would sit on these steps and teach. Luke 21 verses 37 through 38 said, Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. All the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Now, these steps are referred to by many as the teaching steps, and we believe that they're talking about the southern steps. Now, what was so powerful when I got to ascend these steps is that honestly, there's only a few places in all of Israel that you can with certainty say, Jesus walked here. And the southern steps are one of those rare places. The original stairs remain. Many of the original stairs have been uncovered, including the threshold in the front of the temple entry gate. And this is where Jesus must have made a number of trips. And this is also one of the best locations in Jerusalem for a teacher to speak to a group something that we know Jesus did many, many times. Now I'm going to share something else very interesting about the Southern Steps. Many theologians now believe Pentecost, described in Acts chapter 2, starting at verses 1 through 4, but continuing on, they believe that it may have occurred on these steps instead of the upper room, as previously thought. Now let's step back. Pentecost 
is a Greek word, and it's used for the Jewish feast known as Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks. And the Harvest Festival is held 50 days after the Feast of the First Fruits. So Jews would come to celebrate this Feast of Weeks, this Harvest Festival. And during this time, they also would remember God giving the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai. So it, it was a very big holiday, high holiday for the Jews. Now, what I'm going to describe is an opportunity for you to pray for discernment. And this doesn't make uh, a huge difference in terms of salvation, but I, I just find it interesting. And I think this is one of those fruits that can occur when we really start to delve into the Bible. So there are some compelling reasons to believe that the Southern Steps are where Pentecost occurred and not the upper room where they gathered for the Last Supper. And I, I first heard this idea from our Jewish guide in Israel. And so when I came back, I did some more research and I have found that Certainly, my Jewish guide is not alone. There's many theologians now who are starting to agree with this theory. And so, it's actually interesting that we ever associated Pentecost with the upper room, because there's no indication of the upper room mentioned in Luke's Acts 2, starting at verse 1 through 16, when he talks about Pentecost. In fact, all the clues seem to point to the temple. Number one, house in Jerusalem. This word house was always the temple. The Greek word here is oikos. And I looked it up in my Strong's Concordance because I didn't want to just believe certain people. And there's many different Greek words for different types of houses. The word oikos here is temple, God's house, tabernacle, or house of believers. Matthew, Luke, and John have all used this specific Greek word when they're referring to the temple of God. Okay, let's take a step back for a minute. If we view house as the same way that Jesus saw it, it's not a small upper room in a building, but perhaps the house of all houses, the house of God, the temple. Acts 2, verse 1 through 2 says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Okay, so we've got that. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now that one place makes the most sense as the temple, the quote, whole house of God. The best place to give a sermon to over 3,000 pilgrims would have been the Southern Steps. In verse 15, after uh, Peter and the disciples, you know, they're so excited because they're speaking in tongues and they are able to understand each other and they're sharing the good news. Well, there's this 
incident where they're being accused of being drunk because they're so excited. And Peter remarks that they are, in fact, not drunk because it's only 9 in the morning. That's verse 15. 9 a.m., the time that Peter identifies for us. Well, this is the time that every good Jew, including Jesus' disciples, would have been at the temple for the morning sacrifices related to this feast. The Southern Stairs was the logical place for Peter to preach to such a large audience after this Holy Spirit encounter. And it's the only area in Jerusalem with enough of the mikvah. Remember, these are those ceremonial baths, and they've uncovered many of them right at the base of the Southern Steps. They believe there was maybe 140 or 150 of them. And if you needed to baptize 3,000 people, that's a good place to be. Let me give you a little bit more backstory. Now, Luke, again, remember, Luke is our author of Acts, and he also wrote the Gospel of Luke. So at the very end of Luke, the Gospel, in Luke 24, verses 52 through 53, after Jesus has ascended into heaven, it says the disciples, quote, worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and stayed continually at the temple praising God. Now, nowhere does it say that Jesus said they had to stay in the upper room. Jesus told them they needed to stay in Jerusalem. Luke continues in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, and it says, quote, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. Now I'm going to stop here. I've been to the Mount of Olives. I have a picture on my website that shows looking from the Mount of Olives to the temple. And they refer to it as a Sabbath day walk. On the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do anything. So a Sabbath day walk is a half a mile. When they arrived, I'm continuing again in Luke. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. So this is possibly you know, the upper room. Verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And then Acts 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. But it doesn't say that they were all together still in the upper room. Now, again, is kind of interesting uh, since I've been there both to the upper room and the southern steps I was able to visualize how magnificent this would have been if it occurred on the southern steps and let's just think about this for a minute in the Old Testament you know God was often represented by wind and by fire okay what a perfect location for God to let everyone know He's changing his address. That no longer is he going to live in the temple in Jerusalem, but he's now going to live inside his followers. Those Paul describes as 
the temple of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that cool? So the southern steps, as I've said, are located on the southern edge of the combination of the western wall and the southern wall. Used 365 days a year. Hundreds of thousands, million people entered through these stairs, three major holidays. The Southern Steps are very, very unique. They're a combination of smooth stone slabs and carved bedrock. But they alternate between being 35 inches deep and then a really shallow 12 inches deep. There's 30 steps. Each one of these steps is 200 feet long. Now, the engineer was not fired. This was done on purpose. I know it's not to code and OSHA would have had a heart attack, but this was made this way. Can you tell me why? Well, in order to not lose your footing, you needed to look down and take each step slowly. Your steps would need to be intentional and therefore contemplative. They made the stairs this way on purpose so that as you were rising up to enter the temple of God, you would be looking down and thinking about what you were doing. Now, I'm one of these people who trips all the time, even on smooth ground, so I got it. I was so extremely careful climbing those stairs. I watched every step. I took them slowly and methodically. Now, over the years, a songbook, if you will, developed that served as what we'll call pilgrims traveling songs. Now, Pilgrims would be those people who are traveling to the feast from various towns. This isn't uh, the pilgrims with the Native American Indians. No, 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 no. Pilgrims is just a name for people who are traveling a distance. So, you know, for some people, they didn't live in Jerusalem. About 120,000 people lived in Jerusalem, maybe 200,000. Everybody else, it was sometimes many days walk to get to the temple. So, if you open your Bible to Psalms 120 to 134, those are called the Psalms of Ascent, A-S-C-E-N-T. And perhaps these are the songs the Jews sang as they ascended to Jerusalem for their feasts. Some believe that these songs were Songs not just sung on their journey, but also as they ascended these southern steps to the temple. We actually recited a portion of those psalms as we climbed the steps. It was so powerful. Many of us had tears in our eyes as we took each step and recited a psalm, and then took one more step and recited a psalm. We were so intentional about each step. We meditated on his words as we 
anticipated nearing the top and we certainly appreciated the wisdom in making these steps intentionally uneven. Psalm 121 starts, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. My gosh, now that I've been there, I understand. They, they are looking up to the hills. They are looking up to this magnificent temple because they know that that's where their help comes from. Psalm 122. And this one's often thought of as the psalm that would be recited when they finally arrived in Jerusalem. It starts like this. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing at your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There the thrones of judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. There's such great importance in repetition. You know, first century Jewish culture recognized the necessity of remembrance through repetition. And the Old Testament during the time of Moses we know Miriam's song helped them remember God's faithfulness. This was so important to rehearse God's truth, especially for the Jews when the world around them countered God's word at every step. Remember, they were under pagan Roman rule and they were surrounded by Gentiles who didn't worship God. The Psalms of Ascent recited by the pilgrims from memory, remember they didn't have a songbook, <laughs> they were repeating them several times a year. And they would serve as this powerful reminder of their faith, the power of forgiveness, the importance of family, the desire for peace, the hope of hope the importance of brotherhood, the necessity for sacrifice and right attitude toward God and his people. The Psalms would set them in the right heart attitude as they approached the temple of God. You know, I want us to think about this. Are we distracted and thinking about our day and all we need to do? Or do we take a time out to remember God's goodness and enter into his presence with reverence and contemplation. You know, we're really no different than the traveling Jewish pilgrims because without simple reminders, without repeating God's truths, we tend to forget his goodness and we leave him out of our daily lives, don't we? When we return to our post-coronavirus world, what reminders are we going to take with us of God's goodness and presence in our lives? 
what is our heart attitude as we ascend the steps to worship? In the New Testament, we're reminded many times about how now we are God's dwelling place. We no longer have to worship or pray or converse with God in a specific place like a temple because after Pentecost, we're told he lives in us. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And then 1 Corinthians, looking back a couple chapters, 3, verses 16 through 17, Paul says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are in that temple. We know that the original temple was made of cloth. It was the tabernacle, and think of that as a tent, and that was built during the time of Moses so that they could bring the presence of God with them from place to place. And the purpose of the tent was to protect the holy contents that were inside. And then we know they made that more permanent structure called the temple, and that was a more solid way to protect the Ark of the Covenant and to revere the presence of God. You know, but in the same way, we have to protect the contents of our temple, which is the Holy Spirit living in us. When Jesus came, he eliminated the need for a physical temple being in a single location. Christians became the temple of God, a house for the Holy Spirit. Because of his blood that made us clean, we can now be considered pure and holy enough to have God's Spirit live in us. That's crazy. We can now be considered pure enough and clean enough to have him live within us. We've become a meeting place between heaven and earth to commune with God. What a gift. It was a full-time job to keep the temple clean. I know many of you have been doing a lot of cleaning lately, but in addition to sanitizing our homes, have we been sanitizing our temple, keeping our temple clean through purity of heart and mind? Throughout history, Israel's temple had a lot of junk. We know in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, there was an idol to Zeus that was set up in the temple. And then 2 Chronicles 33, verse 15 said, Israelite kings placed idols in the temple. And then, of course, Matthew chapter 21, verse 13 says, And then there were money changers who basically turned God's temple into a den of thieves. So whenever junk entered the temple of God, 
someone attempted to dispose of it. The Jews got rid of the statue of Zeus, and after the Maccabean revolt, Manasseh removed the idols, and, well, we know what Jesus did. He went in and overturned the tables. Well, one way to treat our bodies like a temple is to get rid of the junk. Remove those idols that we've placed in our lives. You know, Matthew 6, 24 reminds us, you can't serve two masters. It can't be two ruling our temple at the same time. So maybe it is time to clean house. Now, removing junk could be removing those things that are damaging to our health or our well-being, you know, the obvious tobacco, excessive drinking, overeating, drugs, pornography. Those are kind of the more obvious ways, but what about the less obvious? Maybe we need to reorient our thinking, reminding ourselves that our bodies are holy and beautiful. And maybe we have to unplug from avenues that tell us differently. Part of this process of cleaning the temple may include removing some idols we've been held on to for a while. Last year, I had our youth group focus on the Bible verse, Romans 12, 2. And I just love this verse. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, because then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The temple in the time of Jesus was built for worshiping. God calls us into worship every day, inviting us to spend time with him and his word. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. So you are no longer outsiders or aliens, but your fellow citizens with every other Christian you now belong to the household of God. Firmly beneath you is the foundation, God's messengers and prophets, the cornerstone being Christ Jesus himself. And each separate piece of building, properly fitting into its neighbor, grows together into a temple consecrated to the Lord. You are part of this building in which God himself lives by his spirit. I love that. What a metaphor for the temple inside of us. You know, the Lord spoke in the temple and his voice was heard. God's still speaking to us in our hearts. And being able to hear his word requires an intimate relationship with him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 tells us how we might do that. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby if you indeed have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, 
are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As we've learned over these past few weeks, building block or stone used to construct a spiritual house or temple has to be sound. Some of the stones weighing hundreds of tons. The foundation and the walls have to have in structural integrity. If the stone is weak, the building will crumble or crack, endangering the entire building. What does our structural integrity look like? Maybe we should spend some time with God to help reinforce our foundation. Hey, have a blessed week and I'll look forward to our time again next week.